Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I want to start out this podcast by saying happy Mother's Day to my mom, to your mom, both avid listeners of this podcast, your mom being a, a shadow producer, frequently sending us ideas to do that we pretty much always do because they're always good ideas. So just <laughs> want to start out by saying happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Hell yeah. Mothers mothers make the world go round. Mothers make little leagues go round across this country. And frankly, we're we're all better for it. So sons, daughters, hug your mothers today. Um, you and I are mothers of I think the really the best best baseball ideas just kind of coming into the public discourse over the last few years. So we're the mothers of them. Yeah, just, <laughs> we've given birth to them. Yeah, have we not? You know, we're about to we're about to give birth to a big one today. <laughs> Should we scrap this podcast idea and instead talk about the unpaid labor that mothers do to allow their sons to play sons and daughters to play little league baseball games? <laughs> I said, so honestly, have a discourse. Yeah, yeah. Have a discourse. It's an hour and a half right there. It really is. Although we are the least qualified people to do that since we are <laughs> not mothers. No, Alex, we have a lot of, actually a lot of baseball news to discuss up top here. Um, if you listen to last week's episode, you uh, might remember that at the end, Alex and I threw out the idea that we would discuss what public ownership might look like in baseball. And we're going to do that a little later in the podcast. Uh, but I want to start by talking to you about the KBO, Alex. We, of course, we recorded our podcast a few days in advance last weekend and so we didn't actually get a chance to address the fact that uh kbo baseball was on our tv screens There's real professional baseball that you could watch live on yeah, espn this, like, we've done all of our podcasts on a much more timely manner in the last three months and then this specific one we waited a couple days and of course there was actual news but uh have you been staying up until 5 30 in the morning to watch the real professional baseball so so absolutely yeah i've um i've managed to catch the the one 130 games that come on the 530 ones are a bit of a stretch for me but you know i can get in a good hour of baseball before i go to bed how about you are you uh it's a little bit easier for you you're on the west coast you're you can maybe tune in around 10 how about are you uh are you watching Carl Ravitch not call a KBO baseball game? Yeah, well, I've I've done it a couple of nights now. I haven't like sat down and watched a full game start to finish, but uh, early season baseball tends to be just what I put on in the background while I'm like editing podcasts or while I'm uh, waiting for podcasts to upload or while I'm recording podcasts and taking notes. Basically, just it's a companion piece for my podcast consumption and. <laughs> creation um so that's what i've been doing with these uh if i'm up late working on a pod or uh if i'm you know listening back to an edit or uh just catching up on my feed i'll just put some baseball on and and watch but uh you and i have both decided that we are going to become fans of specific teams who are you rooting for uh i'm all in on the kiwoom heroes uh like likened to the the oakland A's noted baseball team in uh, Major League Baseball, of which I'm also a fan. Are we not dreaming big enough? Are we like? Are we just asking too much of KBO to be like MLB? <laughs> well, because <laughs> I did the exact same thing. I was like, "Who are the Mets of the KBO?" Yeah, and then I had also, I asked some people who know a lot more about the KBO than me, and they were like, "I would say that the LG Twins." And so now I'm just an LG Twins fan. Yeah, it's like we already made one bad life decision with our fandoms over here. Like maybe we should aim a little higher. You know, we have an opportunity to start fresh. Like why would we not just become fans of the Yankees of the KPO? Uh, I don't know. That feels like a cop out, man. Yeah. Well, I I think the other thing is like a lot of us are looking for baseball to fill our to to quench our thirst for major league baseball right now. And the idea that like there's just an analog like you know comparison from the KBO to MLB that one team will correlate to this team that we're familiar with um is is false right like like this is a 
it's the same sport, but it's got its own culture and its own players that you can familiarize yourselves with and they have their own stories. And so, yeah, on the one hand, I like the the heroes because, you know, they got to they work with a low payroll and they're not owned by a major like corporation conglomerate and they're the rebels on the field. Um but the idea that like, you know, you can boil that down to just being like, oh yeah, they're like they're like the A's of the KBO is I don't know. It's a fallacy. It's oversimplification at its finest. Yeah. Uh, KBO baseball returning and being the only baseball that American baseball fans are really watching right now has had some also weird consequences. Uh, And you alluded to that by saying that Carl Ravitch isn't actually calling these baseball games. There is sort of, and this was always going to happen, but there is sort of this domineering American lens that the public seems to be consuming this league with. And I've seen a lot of people being like, guys, KBO existed before this. KBO isn't just bat flipping. KBO isn't just you getting to live out your fantasy of seeing baseball being played slightly differently. And it's not just a direct analog to your Major League Baseball team. It's its own league with its own history. And I do find that watching these games, if you, if you made a pie chart, it's like 60% discussing when Major League Baseball is going to come back. 35% discussing how KBO compares to Major League Baseball and 5% doing the actual play-by-play of the KBO game. Yeah, ESPN has taken the route of like pretty much always interviewing something someone during their broadcast, right? They've had Eric Thames on. Um, they've had a variety of players who have played in the KBO or currently are playing in the KBO. I know they had Trevor Bauer on recently and accidentally doxed him, to which I say good. Um, but... <laughs> There, there, there is a real like. I mean, frankly, it shows a lack of respect for like what the KBO is, in that you're kind of using this professional baseball league as just a vehicle to talk about the Americanized version of it. Like, it's really, it's messed up, and it makes me like, like I'll just watch the games on mute because, frankly, yeah. I don't really want to hear a Trevor Bauer interview while watching the KBO. People are tuning in because they want to watch baseball right like that's that's literally the reason people are turning on their tvs is because i want to watch an 88 mile per hour sinker paint the black and have a commentator be like oh just a bit outside you know like that's that's what i'm looking for the hard part is that so much of baseball is putting on that broadcast though like that is the part that i feel like to me grounds me about baseball every year the calendar year rolls around and baseball comes back and you and I make the joke that we start to feel whole again. And part of feeling whole again is listening to the pop of the glove and listening to the crack of the bat and listening to crowd noise and listening to, there is a distinct texture and flavor to a baseball broadcast versus other sports. The sounds are just so delightful. And if you mute for good reason, as you're, as you're laying out, you, you miss a little bit of that. Um, I think that's fine, though. Like, I, I mute a lot. I mute watching even MLB broadcasts a lot. If I'm not watching the Mets booth, I never mute them. But I feel like it's, it's done it a little bit of a disservice in this first week since it's been back. And maybe that'll get better. Maybe that is just maybe that is just the ESPN broadcasters or the American broadcasters in general not feeling comfortable with these players and knowing enough about them to discuss them the way that they would discuss Major League Baseball players. And I get it. I mean, I get that it's a tight turnaround. I get that it's hard to call a baseball game. And you're just going to frequently revert back to what you know and what you know your audience knows. So I understand it. And if you put you and I in the booth, we would do much worse. <laughs> like we, we know a lot <laughs> less. And we would just sit there and we would just be like, remember that time in, in college when we went to that Mets game? And we would tell a story <laughs> about the Mets game and nobody would be interested. So far be it for me to say that someone else doesn't know enough about the KBO because I know nothing, you know? Yeah. So it, it's been a little bit of a give and take in the first week back, but happy that there's professional baseball back. Crossing my fingers, hoping that it can remain back safely. Yeah, what I will say is, before we move on from this, um, is that the KBO streams all their games for free um, on Twitch if you're interested in going what and a watching. Concept. What a, what what a, concept, a concept, right? Is like just accessible sport. Accessible sport on your computer 
whenever you want it. Um, so available for free. Obviously, these broadcasts are in Korean, and so if you're watching it, you know it's certainly no Carl Ravitch. Um, but Ben uh, Ben Clemens over at Fangraphs wrote a really interesting piece this past week um, about watching baseball games in Korean and when you don't know the language and the interesting the way that your brain kind of tunes in to things that you may not have otherwise um, tuned into. And this realization that like, it's less about like what the announcers are actually saying and more about kind of like the cadences that they are conveying. Um, I would encourage everyone to, to go and read that. We'll drop the link in the description because I don't, these are really unique times. And I think it's a time for us to like branch out and put ourselves in like in spaces where we don't necessarily feel as comfortable. And I mean, I'm not talking about just watching Trevor Bauer. There is a universal cadence and a universal tonality and a universal pitch and excitement that goes with all baseball and all sports in general. So even if you don't understand it, it can kind of uh, ground you in the way that I was referring to earlier. Yeah. Agreed. All right, Bobby, let's move on from that. Um, there have been some developments in the plan to bring back Major League Baseball. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast. We talked about it last week. We'll talk about some of the the new developments that have occurred in the in the past few days, past few hours. But before we get into that, I just wanted to wanted to read you a little something from the New York Times this past week. In some of America's darkest moments, the country oh has turned God. to Major League Baseball to bring hope and normalcy. Back to everyday life. It I happened. want everyone to know that I didn't know he was going to do this. I don't approve of this, but keep going. It happened after the attack on Pearl Harbor when Franklin Delano and President Franklin Roosevelt issued what became known as the Green Light Letter to Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. President Roosevelt wrote, I honestly feel that it would be best for the country to keep baseball going. He even surprised the team owners by requesting more night games, not fewer as a source of relaxation and escape for weary workers coming home from the wartime shifts. Now, Bobby, nearly 60 years later, baseball again helped to reassure the nation after the September 11 tax. In his first game back in New York, 10 days after the towers fell, Mike Piazza's home run in the eighth inning became a potent sign that our healing had begun. The very next month, we all felt the gravity of the moment as President George W. Bush, do you know the one? Do you know him? Heard of him? I'm familiar. Walked onto the field of the Yankee Stadium before the first World Series game in New York since the attacks, which, of course, the Yankees went to the World Series that year. Like, just I know. <laughs> alone and secretly wearing a stiff bulletproof vest, he climbed to the top of the mound and he fired a strike. The pain of those we lost would never leave and the rebuilding was only just beginning. But at that moment, America, as an idea, roared back to life. <laughs> that is the one and only Scott Boris writing about how it's time to bring baseball back. And folks, I need to go throw up real quick. I'll be right back. I have a question before you go throw up. Mm. Do you think Scott Boris actually wrote that? <laughs> or did someone at Boris Corp write it? Because he's been known to have these kind of creative, drawn-out metaphors. So we yeah. know that he is verbose right. in a way when speaking. So I don't think it's beyond him. But I'm just curious if like he's just sitting in Quar, you know, JC, at home. I don't know if he has kids, but with his kids, theoretical kids, real kids, I don't know, running around. And he's just like typing away. I I feel like he he wrote in ideas and lines and let you know an underpaid intern editors. fill in the rest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he definitely wrote the line America as an idea roared back to life. Which what does that mean? I'm getting it tattooed on me, but I don't quite know what that means. See, you were just sitting there reading thinking that you were just reading that piece, but what you don't know is that in post I'm going to be slowly crescendoing America the beautiful so that by the time you get to the end of that reading it's just blaring in the listeners' ears, and they can't even hear what you're saying. But um, that's for that's for later. My other observation from from this article is um, one that is not unique to me, and one that many people made on Twitter, and that is um, there wasn't a risk of baseball causing more 911s <laughs> like there is right now. 
baseball can cause more outbreaks if we bring it back too soon. If you go back and play baseball, like the Mike Piazza home run was not going to cause more terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. And and why is like why is nine eleven like our go to metaphor right and being like well if we could do it during nine eleven well it wasn't as bad as nine eleven I'm like yeah this is way fucking worse dude look around we got we're getting one We've of those every like day fifty <laughs> times more people than that and it's like the false equivalency that it takes to think that these two things are comparable and to think that bringing baseball back is comparable is just it's an intellectual argument that's not even worth approaching but here we are doing it here we are doing it and here major league baseball is um coming up with their proposal it was reported in cbs sports today uh that their their plan right now is to have approximately 80 games uh beginning in early july they would only face division rivals and and they would ex- 80 games against just the fucking division rivals yeah, 80 I, games i have to watch against the phillies braves uh, and the and the same nats ge- and marlins uh, the same geographic division in the other league okay so you'll also play the yankees and the red sox <laughs> and the rays oh my god <laughs> oh boy uh meanwhile the the league is asking players to take more pay cuts which uh excited to see how that uh how that goes over with the players and Tony Clark. Let's step outside our uh, kind of metacriticism bubble for a second here, because we're going to do a lot of metacriticism in the next 45 minutes or so when we discuss blowing up the ownership structure <laughs> of baseball. Uh, let's just talk about this as baseball fans, like as the product. 80 games just against your division rivals and the other geographical location. And an expanded postseason format league. as well. Seven teams per league go to the playoffs. It, do you like this? Like, do you have a sports talk radio gripe with this? Um, it's not baseball. Is the first thing. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Like, what do you? What do you? <sighs> it's like spring training. What do you do with the team who wins? Do they, like do they get an asterisk next to their name? Like, do we always just look back on this season and be like, I mean, yeah, the Mets technically won. But we can't really give it to him because it was half a season. So it's such an interesting question because the same question applies to the NBA right now, except that the NBA already plays 65 of their games. And so if they started from the playoffs, granted, it would be very weird and it'd be a different format, but it would still be relatively representative of who was good this year. Right. If you're starting from scratch and you're playing 80 games against teams that you very rarely play, Half those teams you you don't really play except for interleague play. You might play one or two of them. And the Mets and Yankees play four games a year because of the New York rivalry. It's going to plant a lot of seeds for people to be like, well, that wasn't a real year. We'll just throw that year away. And maybe that's maybe that's fine. I mean, maybe it doesn't need to be up to the same competitive balance level as all of the other seasons. Maybe we should just be grateful for the opportunity for players to play and get paid and teams to make revenue so that they can continue to employ more workers during all of this. And as long as it's safe, obviously that is the obvious caveat to all this whole conversation, but maybe it's okay if it's weird for a whole year because everything else in the world is really weird right now. Yeah. The thing I I also think about is like, and, and you know, again, this is putting aside the fact that like, this is a really dangerous idea. And I think, no rational fan is just in favor of rushing this sport back. But, you know, again, putting, putting that aside that this is a death wish um, <laughs> is like, there are players who are going to hit free agency after this year in theory. And how does this change the like prospective free agent market? Right. Like, is there going to be a softened market for an aging player who, in his final year of his contract year, like only was able to play 80 games? Like, is that enough of a sample size to judge anyone off of? Are you just kind of because, like, at the core of it, these are real humans who may not play baseball this year, but they're going to age a year and their skills will change and develop or regress regardless of whether one game is played or 162 games are played. And so I am, I would be really curious to see kind of not just how baseball changes over the next three to six months, but the ripple effect that it has on 
the landscape over the next year or two. I think, yeah, I think you can make that runway even longer. I think like five years because contracts that contracts get signed for so long. You take Mookie Betts as an example. Do I mean, do the Dodgers just run it back and be like, well, we traded all this away and we didn't even get to keep him for a whole year. We only got him for half of a year. Or if this plan doesn't go through, we got him for nothing. And I think that's why, to me, I still am in favor of a shortened season rather than no season. One, because I want to watch baseball. And two, because the other side of this coin is even worse. Like the idea that a whole year might go by and a year of service time might pass with players not playing at all. Although although I think it's been discussed that if there is no season, then there's no service time that's applied. So there's no service time, but do the Dodgers get to keep Mookie Betts for another year? I think the contracts, go, the year goes by on the contract, but does not go by in the service time or something. I, it's probably, we need to call Scott Boris. <laughs> that's he's too busy writing lines like "America the Beautiful" is an idea in our dreams. Let's make it a reality. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's just too many unknowns. Still, I think there's too many variables. We haven't seen the bigger picture of a lot of these things, and the Mookie Best example that I gave. I don't see how there's any reasonable world where the Dodgers just allow him to not be on their team next year. It doesn't pass the logic test. It doesn't pass the economics test. It doesn't pass the competitive balance test. It doesn't pass any test at all other than just the MLB stupidity test. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. We haven't ironed out the easy parts of this, so I don't know what to think about the hard parts of this. Well, and... Really, Bobby, the the problem is, and I want you to hold on to your trousers for this transition, but the problem is that there are just a handful of billionaire owners who are making these decisions, and they're only going to do what makes sense for their best business interests. Um, but that's why we have some ideas. And maybe maybe it could be you and I making those decisions in the near future, Bobby. <laughs> Maybe it could be. I realized that we never introduced ourselves, so we're going to do that. We're going to consider this a very extended intro. Uh, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And you're listening to Tipping Pitches. Okay, Alex. I printed out the CBA so that we could just rip it up on the podcast. Are you ready? <laughs> Three, two, one. I'm ripping up the CBA. No one can see. I'm ripping it up into we, shreds. We we have regularly yelled the uh, the phrase nationalized baseball on this podcast before. It's in our Twitter bio. It's in our it's in our Twitter bio. But um but today we explain why and more importantly how that's going to happen. So let's start here. And I think listeners of the show will be familiar with our feelings on this, but I think we should talk them through just to set the table. Why do we need to get rid of the owners? <laughs> uh, let's see. Why do we need to get rid of the uh, the handful of billionaires um, exploiting uh, billions of people? <laughs> because they're not nice. Because they're not nice to me personally. And if yes. they were nice to me personally, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. What I've written down here is that the interest of the billionaires who own baseball teams will never truly or fairly line up with the interest of fans. I think about the idea of a good baseball owner, the one who's willing to spend money, the, in theory, like the, the Steinbrenner or like the, the Phillies owner, John, John Middleton, or the Angels owner, Artie Moreno, these old school type owners who still view owning a baseball team as this thing where you want to compete, you own the team in order to spend money, in order to get good players, in order to try to win a World Series. That is the story that has been told to me about those people. Even in that model, there's still no guarantee that that those interests will ever line up exactly with the interests of the fans in all cases. So if you take the Phillies, for example, they actually tore it down. They tore down a World Series team that was loaded and they 
didn't spend up to their capacity year over year over year until these last couple years. And they alienated large parts of a very devout fan base by dismantling this World Series winning team and then World Series competing team for a couple years after that for kind of kind of no reason. It's just eminently clear that the interest of owners are never going to be fully in line with the interest of fans because owners get this extra icing on top of the cake that's like they get to keep the money at the end and all of the fans get is just the baseball. Yeah. The owners get both. Yeah, like you said, like owners are the ones making money off of this, but it is fans that are routinely subsidizing these money-making schemes, right? Whether that is shelling out 60 bucks for cheap seat tickets or fleecing taxpayers to build a stadium that the taxpayers won't even end up owning, right? So there's clear it, it's very clear that like if we if we want the sport to i don't know reflect our progressive views on like the point of sports in general which is to like promote i don't know like civic engagement and promote ideas of like community then just a handful of rich people being the ones calling all the shots is probably uh probably not the way to go <laughs> yeah because what what does a billionaire know about civic engagement and community? I mean, you can I don't perform know, tearing it. it up mostly. <laughs> you can perform it all you want, but I mean, I feel like I've yelled this into a microphone looking at you over a Zoom call probably like 250 times in my life, but there's just a part of the brain of a billionaire that is atrophied and that part of the brain is knowing what it's like to live in the real world. And it extends down through these baseball front offices all of these people who are former gold, Goldman Sachs people, all of these people who used to work at McKinsey, once you've kind of made this amount of personal wealth or once you've decided that every decision that you're going to make better be the one that makes you money in the long or short term or both in a lot of owners' cases, you just cease to think like a regular human being. Yeah. So at the at the end of last week's episode, we briefly discussed, well, you know, what if we just... What if we just open up a Kickstarter and try and buy the Mets? Or what if we, what if we, uh, what if the Mets IPO'd and you could just start buying stocks in the Mets? What would that look like? And we were half joking and then we started thinking about it a little bit more. And we wanted to ask ourselves the question well, what, what are alternatives to the current ownership structure in Major League Baseball? And it's obviously not exclusive to Major League Baseball. This is something that exists across really like all major sports at the very least in the United States, if not worldwide. Um, so what is there a route for public ownership of major league baseball teams? We've, uh, we've done a little research. We have, we have some thoughts, we've got some ideas before you share the research. I do want to say I tweeted, if the Wilpons IPO the Mets, would you buy stock in them? And our followers are lefty, Nationalized baseball fans should be part of owning teams. Followers voted 56.6% no. <laughs> there you go. Tough beat for us. <laughs> Already getting off on the wrong foot in terms of validating our values here. But I also think that like that's that's like a sort of optics thing where like hmm, maybe I don't want to. I'm not into buying stocks, but. You know, like 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 I said, there are a couple different avenues to take that maybe Let me get don't, that e trade don't app, bro don't feel so like Jordan Belforty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a very evocative version of asking if public ownership existed in sports, would you participate in it? I mean, it's one, it's IPO, which is this very finance broy term. Two, it's the Mets who are a tire fire frequently and who people associate with um, corporate dysfunction. And you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily want to buy into a company that has corporate dysfunction. Yeah. that's Except that, <laughs> except that the companies that have the most corporate dysfunction seem to be the highest valued companies. Like it doesn't, I don't know. Netflix is like leveraged out of their ass and their stock is soaring and freaking Uber has been class action lawsuited like a hundred thousand times yet somehow is <laughs> worth like so much more i don't know i don't understand it at all so yeah i, I i'm not gonna like villainize our 
our Twitter followers for voting no here. <laughs> I, honestly, at this point in time, I don't know I'd buy stock in the Mets either. Um, I would. Let me get it. I'm I'm liquid right now, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so we've both done research kind of on the precedence of this sort of thing. And I think that's kind of where we want to start this discussion is has this sort of thing ever existed in professional sports before? And the answer is a pretty resounding yes in various forms. Um, the most obvious example being the Green Bay Packers, who have been more or less owned by the fans since 1923. Um, they're the only publicly owned, not-for-profit, major professional team in the U.S. And it's a, it's a hard thing to get into at this point in time, but those 100,000 plus fans who own stakes in the team are, who own, I think it's, there are like more than 4 million shares at this point. They vote on decisions like who's going to run the team, right? Oftentimes what happens is these, this large group of fans votes on a collection of a small amount of people who then go and run the team. How is that synthesis? synthesizing so far bobby yeah that that last point is important so it's like representative to democracy as opposed to true democracy where they elect a board of governors or a board of trustees or a board of directors or whatever it's actually technically called in the green bay packers incorporated company and those people make all the decisions after that so it's not like we got two great GM candidates, guys. Let's send out that mass email and see what pe- see who people vote for. It's <laughs> not like throw that. out a Google Doodle poll and be like, should we re-sign Aaron Rodgers? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if it was like that? It'd be so much fun. No, it would be so bad. <laughs> That's what I was talking about last week with the Mets, where it's like, I don't know if majority fan opinion is necessarily good for the Mets organization. but Right. But having fans. That's an input, interesting philosophical argument between like how you want to run your communist state. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And, and like you said, most of this is um, by form of representative democracy. There are other, um, there are other examples as well. Uh, there are examples that exist in minor league baseball um, to, to varying degrees. But this kind of thing is also relatively popular in European soccer, where there are what's known as socios and you can you can basically buy a membership card you know if you're an adult for like 200 bucks and once you do that after a few years of being a quote unquote member of this socio you then gain similar to the green bay packers situation you gain a, a vote in saying here's who i want to to make up this board of directors here's who i want to be the president of the team and there's there's value in that right because if if a president is performing poorly like there's there's something to be said for a gm or your board president or whatever knowing that like they actually have to answer to people who have a vested interest in this and not a monetarily vested interest but like we want to see the team do well that matters and right now all we have is public opinion shaping how baseball owners own their team and it seems like <laughs> the power of public opinion is as diminished as it's ever been in terms of how these control people run their oper- uh run their operations because if if public opinion could sway owners to do what's actually right for the club the whole Marlins situation wouldn't have happened the expos would still be in montreal the the wilpons would have sold the team like all of these countless examples of ownership not doing what it's actually in the public interest I, I do want to say about the Green Bay Packers, like it's not a utopia. So let me just read from their Wikipedia page real quick. Shareholder rights. Even though it is referred to as common stock in corporate offering documents, a share of Packers stock does not share the same rights traditionally associated with common or preferred stock. It does not include an equity interest, does not pay dividends, cannot be traded, and has no protection under securities law. It also offers no season ticket purchasing privileges. Shareholders receive nothing more than voting rights, an invitation to the corporation's annual meeting, and an opportunity to purchase exclusive shareholder-only merchandise. So, if you own Packard stock, it's not like you get paid out dividends at the end of the year if the Packers are doing really well. Which I think is, I'm pro that. I mean, I'm okay with 
you not getting money off the stock because I think like I'd rather see the money be reinvested. In, you know, that's the same thing as like the billionaire owner just pocketing all the profits, right? Like put that money on the field instead. I want to bring up another example from the German soccer league, which has a rule. And this was shared with us um, by a listener, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Has a rule called the 50 plus one rule which states that in order to obtain a license to compete in the Bundesliga, which is the German soccer league, a club must hold a majority of its own voting rights. The rule is designed to ensure that the club's members retain overall control by way of owning 50% of shares plus one share, protecting clubs from the influence of external investors. So this is basically, this is basically the same thing. Yeah. Although there is in, in European soccer, there are slightly more benefits, right? Like you get steep discounts on season ticket packages for example like the lowest season ticket packages for some teams will be like 60 bucks for season tickets like you buy season tickets to see a team in the cheap seats for 60 dollars. that wouldn't even get you to yankee stadium on a wednesday day game how this rule has actually manifested has been questioned and i think with something like this with such big money being involved in all of these teams it's like it's always going to be in question as to whether the people who like these external investors are leveraging more than just ownership. They're leveraging like the carrot that they're dangling out in terms of like sponsorship opportunities or, or even like TV rights. So that being said, we should talk about a third option, which is popular in American lefty discourse. And that is public municipal ownership of the teams. So the teams would be owned by the states or cities that they reside in. Alex, what are your first thoughts about this? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on board. <laughs> um, I, these are all ideas that have been kind of flirted with, um, even, in, even in baseball. Um, so in 1984, when Ray Kroc, who was then the owner of the San Diego Padres, also owner of... Um, something called McDonald's, whatever that is. Uh, when he died, his widow Joan tried to actually give the Padres to the city as a public trust. And MLB Sick was move. amazing Sick move by Joan shouts out to Joan Croc. Uh, MLB said, fuck no, that's not happening uh, because you know, that's profits out the door for us. Um, but these are ideas that like, have floated uh, around the discourse before. Um, to bring it back to the the Packers for a second, um, Dave Zirin, um, who is a sports columnist and noted just lefty podcaster, uh, famous person, just just yeah, you you, you know the guy. <laughs> um, back in 2011, he wrote about the Packers. Um, in the New Yorker, and he said, quote, the public is already shouldering a great deal of the cost and debt for NFL franchises, but these public dollars, through some sort of magic alchemy, morph into private profits that often flow away from the communities that ponied up the dough. In the United States, we socialize the debt of sports and privatize the profits, which I read that and it just kind of blew my mind because that way of thinking about who is investing the money into these teams versus who is reaping the, the benefits of it is like, it's like night and day. And so this idea that cities could step in and essentially buy a team through bonds or raise taxes or whatever, and then the profits from that just are forced to, you know, I mean, you just make it like, like any other government entity, right? Like the profits that are generated just go back into making that organization better yeah this is the one to me. <laughs> like, like so i think we can start to sort of blend the end of this conversation in um because i wanted to close by talking about what are some of the unintended consequences of taking ownership away from individuals and spreading it out to a lot of other people so I, I think you and i would agree that, that there's if there's like a sliding scale here we're already on the worst end of it because single billionaires owning things are clearly not in the interest of the many other people who should have interest in these sports teams. But I think that having fans own part of the team with all the history of baseball players 
and the baseball labor unit, the players association, the union being sort of villainized for wanting more for themselves. I feel like it kind of sets up an interesting power dynamic between like the, the fans who now actually own the team and the players who are asking for more from the team. And so it's like, I don't want to create a world where fans are like, I want to screw over the players as much as possible so that the organization can make more money and then reinvest it. I feel like you're maybe setting up a dangerous precedent if you let these fans who might have, um, as you know, baseball fandom is a more conservative subsect of the American population than listeners of tipping pitches. I feel like you are maybe setting it up where um, now the new shareholders of the team are like, all right, let's pull one over. I now agree with Rob Manfred. (laughs) What do you think about that? I agree with the the premise of that. I think especially because of the way that baseball just the hive mind has kind of shifted over the last decade and decade and a half. And now every with, with something like fantasy baseball, every, every fan sitting on their couch thinks that they can be a GM or that they could run a baseball team better. Um, they know how to spend the money better. And there's certainly a, a double-edged sword there. I think The thing preventing that mostly is I don't think baseball fans are just smart enough to do that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, No disrespect to baseball fans. I'm one of them. You're one of them. I'm probably not smart enough to pull one over on the players either. And... But whether you're smart enough to pull one over like yourself, you're not going to be the one sitting across the table from them. I think the team and the board of directors that you vote on will still hire a lawyer who's trying to pull one over on the PA, you know? So then you are now technically on the side of management, you know, because you are now managing the company or you own a share of something that is being managed by managers of that, that organization. Yeah, that franchise. A- absolutely. But there's also no incentive to like pull one over the, on the players so that you can like pocket the money because like at a certain point, the money has to go somewhere, right? Like if it's not going into the pockets of owners or the pockets of shareholders or whatever, there's going to be money left on the table. And so once you have built your stadium renovations and you have done your remake of the concession stand, so they only sell craft beers and you've redesigned the team's logo because for some reason you really like the combination of pink and yellow. Once you've done all these things and spent the money all on that, I feel like there will be less resistance to just paying players like what they're worth. And obviously this is like, this is very like idealistic and we're coming at this from a very specific perspective on paying players what they're worth. But I'm also just kind of like, like if, I had a vote and Mike Trout said, hey, give me all the money in the world and I'll play for you. I would be like, okay. (laughs) But, you and I would vote yes now. And so I think like it does kind of a little bit cloud the incentive of fans who might be voting in the future. I I should have said this at the beginning and I'll say it now very (laughs) slowly and seriously. If an economist ever listened to this podcast, we would sound like the two stupidest people in the world. We don't know anything about how this would actually work in practice. I just want to say this is more of an ideological conversation about how this could change rather than um, like you and I taking a red pen to the CBA and discussing how we would actually change it. We obviously don't know about how this would play out and what antitrust laws are in place right now in the United States that would make this impossible. There's obviously a million reasons why this is not possible. Yeah, well, and the first being really that no league wants this at all, including Major League Baseball. It's written into the rules of pretty much every league, including the NFL, uh, there is a there is a rule specifically prohibiting any other team from doing what the Green Bay Packers do, and it's obviously it's hard. It has its limitations as well, um, but it's also a step forward, I think, from the system that exists right now. And teams would be against this thing because Rob Manfred and his group henchmen at the top of the league, like you want to have those relationships with owners because then you can make decisions with them that are quote unquote in the best interest of the league. Um, And Rob Manfred and his henchmen lose a lot of power when all of a sudden 
teams are run by a collection of tens or hundreds of thousands of fans because all of a sudden you owe them something, right? It's not just like who you're buddy buddy with. Yeah. I think we should start talking about eminent domain. So, (laughs) (laughs) which sounds crazy to say, but actually is how this would happen if we were going to go the public municipalities route. I think it's like a home run. Honestly, I hate to use a baseball pun to talk about baseball, but I think it's a home run because Obviously, baseball teams are worth a lot of money. And these billionaires are worth a ton of money. And it's a multi-billion dollar um, industry. And it's prohibitive of any normal person ever getting into the ownership structure of baseball. But you know what's worth more money than even these billionaires? The U.S. government, (laughs) collectively. (laughs) And yes, there is legal precedent for MLB teams being allowed to operate the way that they're currently allowed but I mean eminent domain is straight up in the bill of rights like it's in the it's in the constitution have you read the fucking constitution my guy (laughs) ever heard of free speech in the first amendment and the only thing preventing the government from taking things and converting them to public use is that it's just like a tough sell to the public for the government to take things over and convert them to public use because people in this country and in all countries get very queasy about the idea of the government exerting their power over individuals in theory. But they would be exerting their power over individual billionaires for the betterment of those local communities in theory if it was done right. Obviously, as I mentioned the caveat before, it's a very idealistic version of this conversation. There's obviously a, a bad version of this conversation where government takes over the the Mets or Dodgers and then suddenly like there's a lot of corruption and there's so much money coming in via baseball and suddenly baseball becomes a vehicle for government corruption, which is like a bad thing. Um, but I don't know. You you indicated and to me that this is the this is the best version that you see it. Why do you see it that way? because I think the government should own everything because (laughs) that's my political perspective because, because like at the end of the day, like we already have systems of democracy, like set up that help us decide most other things in this country. And so nationalizing sports, nationalizing baseball is just another way to kind of like at least start to hold these systems like, accountable. Now, I'm not saying that I currently think our politicians are accountable to voters because for the most part, they're not, but also billionaire owners aren't. And there's a lot of money that is left on the table that goes into owners' pockets. And if the city of New York owned the Mets, like maybe that's money that actually goes to things that the city needs because baseball teams generate a fuck ton of revenue. And what if you, what if the city buys the Mets and then with that leftover like handful of million dollars each year, they like start building homes for people in a city that is notoriously short of them, or at least short of wanting to give them to people. What if you actually start, what if baseball becomes a vehicle for providing like real services that people need? Like, I think that there's a real conversation to be had there of where all of a sudden baseball becomes a real public good. Um, and Yeah, because it's argued all the time that that's, what, that's why it exists. These owners parrot these ideas that baseball existing in Los Angeles is good for the community because it creates jobs and... It does all of these other things, but at the end of the day, they're the ones coming away richer than anyone else. And the people it creates jobs for are like maybe making a living wage, maybe not. And I think something that you mentioned earlier about citizens are already providing a lot of the revenue for teams to do what they do. Right. <laughs> In many municipalities, taxpayer dollars are going towards subsidizing new stadiums and new projects. Why not just knock that all down and make it one line? Like, why not create why not create a system where, well, if taxpayers are going to be paying anything at all, then they actually own it, you know? They actually own the profits at the end of the day. It also creates a world where, like, 
you know, we can talk about government corruption and, and how our current government officials would be able to handle something this big. Well, like the MTA is bigger than the Mets. <laughs> so like we're already okay with a world where government failure and corruption controls like transportation, one of the most important things that a city can have. So not that I'm saying that we should sign up to have another thing as large as the MTA that needs to be managed. <laughs> the MTA me. as your example of here's why we should let the government it's run It's my stuff. example of like it can't get worse. Yeah. You know, like it can't possibly be worse. You could still get on the subway and go. It's still like a, a marvel to me that that there's a public transportation system that runs 24 hours a day that you can get on and, and go places. Yeah. Granted, it could be a lot better, but. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, it's the kind of thing like. Just it add, is a public good. It exists a public, as a public good. Add it to the ballot in November. All right. Who, which five people do you think should run the, you know, the New York Mets for the next four years? And then when those four years are up, you can keep voting on the same people you like, or maybe someone else wants to come in and become, right? Like, like I said, these systems are in place already. Just, just fold, just fold baseball into it. I, you know, that's easy, right? <laughs> uh, this point was made um, in a Jacobin article by Ben Burgess and in a tweet by Eric Levitz. But if you want to talk about civic engagement, sports gets people engaged. Yeah. So if you're going to the polls to vote for who might run the New York Mets because you're a Mets fan, you will also be going to the polls to vote for other stuff too. Like this, there are other unintended positive consequences to something like this too it's not just about what might happen and and the the blowback nationally now obviously we don't have the political climate for this right now yeah there's just no way you could sit down a bunch of fans and convince them why it would be a good thing for the new york city government to own the mets and yankees yeah no you're absolutely right about that but i think that that point of civic engagement is a really important one I to bring it back to the Green Bay Packers like they sell out all their games and they have done that for decades when when snow goes and covers the field they put out a call and say who wants to come help shovel snow and people come and do it they volunteer to come help because like it's it's a part of the community can you imagine if Fred Wilpon like tweeted out from the Mets account was like does anyone want to come help shovel snow off the field today like that tweet would get ratioed to death (laughs) people would probably still do it i know probably because we're beholden to sports teams but beyond civic engagement though before we get off this point the green bay packers are in green bay still green bay exactly the the smallest think about how much more money think about how much more money one individual billionaire could make off marketing aaron Rodgers in Houston or Dallas or Los Angeles or San Diego, like Seattle, any of these other places where if they could move the Packers to and make more in theory, make more money, like make more profit off of the team. But that's not what it exists for. It exists as something to be tied into the community. And Aaron Rodgers just goes and makes his own sponsorship money from State Farm. Like, (laughs) We'd still have all of those individual capitalistic problems too to deal with, but that's not that's for a different podcast. It's just a marvel that in a league that is as dominated by the idea of profit, 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 profit as the NFL, that they still have a team, an original franchise that has a huge fan base, huge national fan base, and a huge local fan base that is good. It's a good team. They make it to the they make it to the Super Bowl relatively frequently as far as compared to other teams. Um, they're pretty much always competitive for my whole lifetime. And they're still existing in uh, like the smallest market imaginable. I mean, Roger Goodell makes $50 million a year because he is so profit-focused that all of these owners of NFL teams have gotten filthy rich. Yet they still have a team existing in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's it's actually kind of a miracle. And it's it's only possible because of their public ownership. Yeah. I mean you can arguably draw a line from that public ownership to Aaron Rodgers for that public ownership, putting their faith behind a GM um, in 
Ted Thompson, who did not feel like he was just at the whim of a few billionaires and had to make them as much money as he can and was able to uh, to get rid of Brett Favre in order to make room for a guy like Aaron Rodgers because he actually was interested in doing what was good for the team. And that worked out, I, I think. Let's tie these loose ends. What's the upshot here? What do we leave out? Other hurdles that we'd have to jump. Um, other reasons why this might not work. How quickly we could install something like this. <laughs> How quickly can we get this done? Um, it's hard, frankly. It's hard to get people to buy into this sort of thing. And I think you want to do whatever you can to lower the barrier of entry as much as possible. I don't, while it's awesome that you can buy a membership card for $200 for FC Barcelona, like that's still $200 more than some people would like to spend on a being a member of a professional sports team, right? So I think a really... You can't make it free. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pull your weight. <laughs> I mean, the way to make it free is that like everybody who lives in this place owns it because they're a taxpayer. Like that—that's what you're—that's what you're talking about there. Yes, effectively. Um, so the and the I think the other obstacle is kind of like you were saying is like when you fold it into being government run. Like historically, governments are not always incredibly transparent, and corruption's a thing that has happened from time to time in. New York City and other places as well. <laughs> so, so like, th- would there be issues? Absolutely. But would all of a sudden teams start to become beholden to the people who are actually have a stake in them, whether it's financially or just like culturally? I think so. I mean, it's all about, is it worse than the way that we have it now? Because the way that we have it now is pretty bad. Yeah. The interest of fans is, is pretty low on the ladder of owner interest. And I mean, it, if you don't agree with that, I mean, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast this late. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the last thing I want to add, I think on that point is you talk about the interest of, of fans is pretty low on the, on the level of just kind of what owners give a shit about on a day-to-day basis. But also this is a time where we're having a conversation about fan interest in the game. And how can we engage a new generation of fans? You know, baseball's at this turning point where what does the future look like? Is baseball attendance declining? Are people watching baseball anymore? And like, if all of a sudden you give the team to a city, you give the team to a collection of a few hundred thousand fans, like there's your dedicated fan base that doesn't feel like they're getting fleeced every day. It's an incredible experiment. Like, can you create recreate civic engagement with the sport of baseball by actually letting civic engagement occur in baseball? It's sort of like like a feedback loop type of question. Yeah. Right? It's like, can actually asking people what they think incentivize people to think more about your sport? Basically, if you build it and then transfer ownership over to fans, they will come. I want to end with this headline from CNN in 2014 on an opinion piece. The headline is Sell the Clippers to the People. Alex, the author, is none other than Newt Gingrich. (laughs) You want to talk about freaking bipartisanship reaching across the aisle. A universal appeal here. We can get former Republican Speaker of the House and noted awful human being. Newt Gingrich to agree that teams should be publicly owned. Well, come on, man, this is a slam dunk. Wow, I don't, I don't know why you had to uh, tip our pitches on next week's interview guest, but yeah, folks, you heard it here first. Newt Gingrich, we're going to have him on uh, to talk about public ownership with a special follow up from Donald Sterling. It's going to be a good one. Okay, Alex. I think what we should do is we should sit on this. We should think a little bit more on it. And maybe we should start reaching out to some people who know a little more about these these concepts than us. <laughs> to see if they'll come on the podcast and refute our refute our pie in the sky ideas. 
I I mean, I want to shout out also all the, the people who we mentioned on this podcast because there was a decent amount of research that, that we did. And there's a lot of work and discourse already out there surrounding that. Um, so we will make sure to kind of link to some of these key um, articles and ideas because they're they're very foundational um, to this conversation. Are you going to link to uh, the United States Constitution? Right, which is the, the very foundation. <laughs> We didn't when, even go into eminent domain that much. I, and Be y- thankful, listener, that I didn't go on an eminent domain <laughs> rant about how every luxury condo in New York City should be co-opted by the government and given to homeless people. Frankly, the fact that we actually brought up the U.S. Constitution and used it to back up an argument that we were making is further than I'd ever thought we would go on this podcast. We have gone so much further right than the U.S. Constitution <laughs> through over the last 200 years. <laughs> really in the last 30 years, but you know. We yeah. don't need to start talking about Ronald Reagan. Oh, God, <laughs> we're too late in the podcast for that. Did you did you know that the Cleveland Indians in '98 made an IPO stock? I didn't. Uh, it was just for a couple of years, and then it was sold back to a private investor. And that's it, worked out well. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And the the owner still owned a controlling share, so like shareholders had a vote, but it didn't really mean anything. But again, this is an idea that has been floating around people's heads for decades now, literally almost a century, almost a century ago, some upstart, plucky upstart fans said, you know what, we're going to take this old rundown team in Green Bay back. We're going to take it back for us, the people. And, uh, and, and here they are, still standing today. Socialism hasn't torn them down yet. Thinking about the idea of the Packers being like one of the most one of the shining lights of socialism in America within the <laughs> National Football League is like <laughs> just explodes my brain uh, okay thank you to everyone for listening thank you Alex for your dogged preparation for this podcast we'll be back next Monday in your feeds enjoy the KBO enjoy the potential return of Major League Baseball if it ever actually happens hell yeah hit us hit us with your favorite KBO team hit us with the player we should be looking out for right now and uh, enjoy any more Scott Boris opinion pieces in the old gray lady. Thanks for listening as always, y'all. We'll talk to you soon. Toss a dollar in the river and when he jump in, if you find he can swim with lead boots on him and do it again. You and a friend, videotape and a party don't win. Tell him that boogers be selling like crack. He gon' put the little baggies in his nose and suffocate like that. Put a 50 in the barrel of a gun when they try to suck it out.